For our scripture reading this morning, I will be reading two passages. Uh, you may turn to those. I'll be reading the first five verses of Leviticus 18 and the first 17 verses of Ephesians chapter 5. In Leviticus 18, we notice where God establishes his authority and his prerogative to make rules for his people to live by. In the passage from, from Ephesians, we notice an appeal to those who have embraced Christ's salvation to live holy lives, shunning the evil acts and attitudes of the former life. Both of these passages bear on Brother Steve's message this morning. God has the authority to make rules and those who claim to be his children must live by his rules. Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you you shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Ephesians 5, 1 through 17. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ hath loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor cruel joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God 
invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This sermon is one in what could loosely be called a trilogy of sermons, and I think they in many ways kind of belong together. About uh, four weeks ago, from the Great Commission, the mandate of Jesus to us as his disciples, go make disciples. That's one of his great commands to us. It's his charge to us that in our going throughout the world, whether going for other primary purposes or whether it becomes our primary objective, we are to be, make, we are to be making disciples of Jesus Christ. And then two weeks ago, life in exile. How do we, as followers of Jesus, as strangers, pilgrims in exile, live in a world that does not acknowledge the authority of Jesus as faithful followers of Jesus? And there, a specific call for us to be actively present, invested, and productive in the place God calls us. For some of you, that's overseas in missions. For others, it's in this town, this community, this county, this state, this country. Wherever God places you, there's a sense in which we're in exile, but he calls us to build houses, plant gardens, get married, have families, pray for our city, and to work for the well-being of our city. And today now, the church in an age of moral revolution. And the principles of this message today apply broadly to many, many different specific issues. But today, the specific goal will be to provide an introductory biblical paradigm by which to assess the moral and ethical challenges of our day, particularly as presented by the LGTB agenda and the challenges that they are presenting to the church, to the Christian message. And within that context, most specifically, the question of homosexuality. In July of this year, a three-judge panel on the Fourth Circuit of Appeals in the state of Virginia ruled that Virginia's constitutional ban on same-sex marriages is unconstitutional opening the door for gay marriage in the state of Virginia. Now, that was immediately put on a stay by the Supreme Court because of an appeal to the Supreme Court, and that's where that is today. This issue keeps coming closer and closer to home as the moral revolution against what is commonly called traditional marriage grows ever more pervasive in our country and even in the church. And given the nature of this moral revolution that we're facing, there are some challenges that come right alongside, challenges that likely many in this audience will face in the workplace, in your vocation, possibly even in areas of ministry, how do I, 
relate to an invitation from a coworker to attend a wedding of a same-sex couple. This could be on our immediate horizon. How will you respond? It's no longer considered shameful to be a practicing homosexual. And as such, there tends to be a certain belligerence in our culture today in this coming out of the closet, as it were, from what was once considered to be shameful to now a blatant in-your-face, you have to tolerate and bless my particular understanding of this moral revolution. This challenge calls for the wisdom of God to live wisely in a God-honoring way. It calls for the wisdom of God to help us navigate these tumultuous times. The Bible does speak to the issue. Not frequently. Uh, if you listen to some of the people who oppose the historic Christian position on homosexuality, you would believe that most of the Bible is written against homosexuals. It's just not true. But the Bible does speak clearly to the issue. God, in Scripture and through Scripture, establishes human sexuality as a good thing, a God-designed thing, when it is practiced within God's defined order. One man, one woman, in a covenant relationship for life. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. When, as any appetite, it begins to take power and demand that it be satisfied, then it becomes a problem. And it becomes distorted. Scripture also notes and warns against the many distortions of this God-designed order, including homosexuality. And again, the term homosexuality, very simply, of the same sex as opposed to of two different sexes or genders. Two men or two women living as God-designed male and female in marriage. We have basically in Scripture six passages that specifically address it. And there are likely others that we could reference that would be helpful in discussing the subject. But we're going to just briefly survey these six passages and then come back to Romans chapter 1 and, and look a bit more specifically at this one. How we approach this subject today, uh, there are many different ways of doing it, and I'm going to take a pretty broad, sweeping, fast-paced move uh, on this topic. And it may well uh, open... Uh, a forum for what might need to be much more extended conversation, particularly for some of you, depending on your immediate positions and also context, the issues that you might face. The first one, Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That story, and we 
addressed it here in our study of Genesis just recently, is about many things. But one of them is clearly the issue of homosexuality and God's concern and judgment about that. So the moral degradation and the prominence of homosexuality in the city of Sodom is addressed. Other issues are addressed, but it is clearly addressed in that passage. A little further down in the passage, Brother David read uh, 18, Leviticus 18, and then again in chapter 20, there are very simple legal prohibitions against homosexual activity. And that was just very simple and very clear language that God gave to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Then in the book of Romans, we have the passage we'll be looking at today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, specifically verse 9, homosexuality appears in a list of sinful behaviors that will exclude people from inheriting the kingdom of God. And there are many other things in that list. Things that many of us have encountered in our own hearts, in our own attitudes. The things that God says will exclude us from the kingdom of God ultimately. But it's followed by a refreshing reminder. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he says, you know, that list, you were like that. You could check off that list. Some of you this one, some of you that one, some of you the other. And I think we could say the same here today. You read down that list. You were like that. I was like that. We fitted that list. But the refreshing news of the gospel is that we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So clearly the, the Christian message in 1 Corinthians 6 is, so you are that way. You are an idolater. You are an immoral person. You are an adulterer. You are a slanderer. You are a whatever. Go down the list. It doesn't mean you have to stay that way. Now, just because you don't stay that way doesn't mean you don't still struggle with those same sinful desires. But we can be washed, we can be sanctified, we can be justified by the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we find ourselves being a new people of God. That's the hope of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 10, Paul, in writing to Timothy, this young pastor, says, I want to remind you that the law of God is given for those who practice evil. So for people who are violating God's ordered world by their practices, the law is given to pass judgment, to bring clarity to those evils. That's the purpose for the law. And it includes in that list many other sins, but includes that of homosexuality. Now Romans, <coughs> pardon me, Romans chapter 1. Let's read verses 18 to 32. The context of this opening passage, and I'll leave Brother Linford, uh, which I think, I think he'll be back in this passage in the not-too-distant future. 
uh, I'll give him the opportunity of doing a more thorough exegesis of this passage. But I want you to notice that the context for this passage is the Apostle Paul is writing to the Gentile world. He's writing to people who have rejected and have not really known the God of the Jews. He's writing to them and reminding them that they are facing God's wrath and God's judgment because there is a message that's etched in the universe, that's etched in creation, that Paul argues you can't miss. Okay, and he's not even talking about the Bible here. He's saying you look at the created world, you look at the way people function, you look at the way the sun, moon, and stars, and the trees and the plants and the animals live. You just pay attention to the world in which we live. There are some laws etched in the universe that you can't ignore. And it's enough, he says, for God's wrath and judgment to be poured out on you if you ignore them. That's the central message here of Romans chapter 1. So we break in in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness <coughs> and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, notice this line, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Okay, and I, I'm going to have to resist with all my energies, not stopping and just digging some deep post holes at every one of those lines. Okay, but just catch this. Okay, this, this is powerful language. Ever since the creation of the world, he says it's been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So, mankind is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, now I want you to notice three times we have this little line, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to, dis to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here it is the third time, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, 
haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's plain English. Just plain, straightforward English. Notice what's going on here. As they look at the world around them, they become aware there's a creator, there's a God. They may not know much about him, but universally, the fundamental assertion of any people group is that there's somebody out there. May not be the triune God of Christianity, but we're worshipers, and the world shows us there's someone out there. But what do we do? We suppress that reality, that there might actually be someone out there that we're going to answer to someday. We just suppress it. We, we just shove it off to the side. We reject it. We neglect it. And as a result, we begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. We begin to value more the created world than we do the one who created it. And so our loves become immediately disordered. Because you see, the first commandment is to love God so that we can actually fulfill the second commandment, which is to love our neighbor. But if you get that one turned upside down and you love your neighbor apart from a context of loving God, you're not ultimately going to love your neighbor. You're going to tolerate them. You're going to excuse all kinds of things in your neighbor and in yourself because there is no one to whom we're all going to answer. And so the claim to have a love for people that is not anchored in a love for God immediately disorders and disrupts what it means to love your neighbor. And it becomes chaotic and confused. So the message of tolerance in our culture that values love in monogamous relationships, no, no matter how they're ordered, basically says, I love my neighbor first. Doesn't really matter whether God approves or not. And in this pathway, when people take that posture, and which I'm suggesting to you is the default human posture, that's where we start. We actually pay more attention to ourselves than we do to God. We ignore God. We've pushed him off to the side, and we want to do our own thing. And when that happens, it says God gives them up. Now, <coughs> the three times this passage, this, this little line occurs in this passage, God gives them up. The way I understand this, and I, I'm open to your input on this later, but it seems to me that God in his mercy has been restraining the evil in the world. In his, what some theologians call common grace, he is holding back people from being as bad as they really could be. He's restraining evil, even ungodly people. So we've not seen it as bad as it could get, given the orientation of the human heart. But when people insist and persist in denying God, 
he, he, he lets them go. He get, eventually he gives them up. So that the final letting go is going to be hell. In which God says, so you want to live in a, an autonomous, self-ordered world completely apart from my merciful and gracious restraint, so be it. Off you go. And everyone is there completely for himself, trying to run it his way, but so is everybody else, and it's hell. And that doesn't negate the possibility of this eternal flame. It's just saying, God finally lets us go where we said we wanted to go. We suppress the truth. He lets us go. He lets us go. He lets us go. He lets us go. And when God lets his creation go, it's tragic. Because a broken world just begins to unravel. So, first, he lets us go when our loves are disordered and we worship the creature instead of him. Second, he lets us go when we exchange the truth of God for lies. We say, you know, I'd really rather not know the truth. And, and I'm sure we've all found ourselves in those kinds of situations where the truth is so painful, is so frightening, and it might be, it might be a medical condition. Uh, we're afraid we might be terribly sick and might actually die of something. It's, but we prefer not to go to the doctor, not actually find out what's wrong. We prefer the illusion that, ah, oh, probably just, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. All kinds of situations. There are times in which we prefer the lie rather than the truth. Okay, and when we persist in that way as it relates to God, it says he, he lets us go. He releases us further into that deception. And finally, the rejection of a natural order that's apparent in our knowledge of God, how God orders the world. When we now willingly reject that and we begin to exchange natural relations for unnatural relations, God, again, lets us go. This passage says very poignantly that among other things, homosexuality is unnatural. It's against nature. It's against the way God designed it. And again, we could spend a lot of time exploring this sociologically, uh, even philosophically, but in a very simple nutshell, sexual relationships in marriage are about family, are about procreation, are about stable sociological units in which the next generation is reared and given shape to advance the human civilization. And when you tamper with and reorder and restructure that fundamental sociological unit of a culture, the culture is breaking fast. It's breaking fast. And the common charge we hear is, well, God made me this way. Is simply not true. The Christian perspective looks all the way back to Genesis 2 and says, no, God did not make us. 
this way. Now, it doesn't mean that people with same-sex attractions in our day, presently, are totally responsible for having chosen, volitionally chosen that pathway. And again, I'd love to stop right there and unpack that one. There clearly are relational components, sociological components, and even genetic biological components that give shape to people. But it's also true for alcoholics. It's also true for people who have serious drug addictions. It's also true for people who have all kinds of other distortions. And we don't always know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Okay? But I have, I have a very good friend whose wife has struggled for years with addiction to painkillers. And he said when they've done mental uh, brain imaging, the brain is functioning different than it did when she was, quote, not addicted. So there are physiological issues at stake. That still does not justify the behavior. It still doesn't make it right. And when we take the unnatural way, we bless the unnatural way, we contribute to the ongoing breakdown of our society. And I would, I would like to say that while there are many facets which, which give shape to who we are and that influence us and help us to be tempted or nurture our, us in a way that we are tempted in particular ways because of the relationships we've had, because of the families we've grown up in, because of the culture in which we live, to take the next step and say, then it's who I am, and as such, my behavior is justified because I've been caused to be this way. That's a further denial of reality and buying into the lie. And what makes it difficult for us is that there's a whole language now that has grown out of this subculture. And we'll address that briefly in a minute. The other thing this passage makes very clear is that increasing homosexuality, the increased prominence of it, the increased openness of it, is evidence in some measure of God's judgment. And it's not so much a judgment of, of a pouring out of wrath and punishment as it is the judgment of saying, so if you insist, then I'll let you go. I'll let you go. It's this giving up. It's investing less in restraint. And, and here, here's, here's an area that I believe comes, becomes very sensitive it's so easy for us, and particularly as Christians, I think, to see this problem or this sinful tendency or this same-sex attraction as being a very individual thing. It's them, it's not me. It's him, it's not me. It's her, it's not me. Rather than what appears to be more commonly in this passage, a cultural thing. And I think sometimes as conservative Anabaptists, we see ourselves as quite aloof and insulated from our culture, and I want you to know you are deeply shaped and influenced by being a 21st century American living in the United States, in Virginia, in Rockingham County. You're deeply shaped by that. It doesn't even matter if you've been quite deeply isolated from your culture, you're deeply shaped by it. And when our culture is increasingly open about same-sex attraction, that impacts the church. 
It nurtures the language of the church as it talks about these issues. It, it opens the door for people beginning to acknowledge certain impulses and desires that they feel that they would have previously acknowledged to be shameful and would have kept closed in the closet. And again, I'm not saying that's the answer. Okay? But when you live in a culture where the coming outs are hitting the public news day after day from celebrities, from all kinds of famous and well-known people, you can be absolutely assured that the culture as a whole will begin to identify same-sex attraction in ways they have not previously identified it before. And that sinful tendency has an invitation to open up in that culture. And so this cultural moral revolution will and is deeply impacting the church. It's deeply impacting us, and we must be aware of how that is happening. And I would also say, as this, this moral revolution is taking place in our country, it becomes more and more imperative that as the people of God, we pay focused attention on the renewing of our minds by regular saturation with the truth of God, with discipleship, with being nurtured in the truth of God, with the humble acknowledgement that we are broken and we have to get our perspective of the world from God or it's going to be a wreck. So it becomes, while it's always been important, it becomes just increasingly more and more and more important that we regularly get together, we regularly interact with the Word of God, we regularly pray, we pay attention to these kinds of things. Because the pull, the culture, is being let go, is being let go, is being let go. And we don't want to be let go with it. We want to be restrained and guided and empowered and invigorated by the renewing grace of God in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives, in our practices. So in a nutshell, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? We've talked about Romans 1. I also want you to think about the big narrative. And I see I'm in trouble. James gave me 10 extra minutes, but that's not everybody else. Uh, <coughs> I want you to remember the biblical narrative, the goodness of creation. Never forget that initial creation, God said, it's very good. Very good. Never, never forget Genesis 3, that when man and woman rebelled against God, everything broke in all its parts. And ladies and gentlemen, that includes you. You're not exempted. Every part of who you are has been impacted by that fall. That means when you walk the streets of Harrisonburg or D.C. or New York or go anywhere in the world, every man, woman, and child you meet has been broken, distorted, fragmented by this fall, and it has implications for the world, the universe in which we live. But there's also the message of the gospel that says the good creation, broken and fallen, has the potential of being made new and restored and regenerated because the God-man Jesus died on the cross embracing the brokenness of humanity, was raised again by the glorious power of God into a new resurrected body that is glorious. And you too, though broken deeply, 
can be a part of that sweeping transformation out of a world that's increasingly morally corrupt into a new creation, a new people of God, a new society that once again begins to demonstrate the glory and goodness of God. We can be that, and it's not just futuristic, it starts today. And so as individuals embrace that through faith in Jesus, their lives are being transformed, their minds are being renewed, and we gather together as a people of God, we begin to put before a watching world a faith that's alive in Jesus and a community of faith that demonstrates a way of life that more closely resembles the eternal purposes of God and the way it's ultimately going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. We get to be that deposit, be that down payment in this broken world today. And we must remember that. We must remember that. It's not just futuristic, folks, it's now. It's today. We can be participating in that. That's a part of the big story. The final line of the big story is he's got it started, he's going to finish it. So there's a time coming when this will be the new normal. The new people of God, fully restored, living in the perfect order and harmony in the worship of Jesus Christ in a beautiful new heavens and new earth. That new normal is coming. Now, it's not yet, okay? But it's coming. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, he's going to finish it off. And you can be absolutely assured of that. And it doesn't matter what form of brokenness you start from. Okay? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the nature of that initial brokenness is. It doesn't matter how your society, how your genetics, how your certain relational backgrounds have contributed to your brokenness and how ugly your life is. It doesn't matter. The pathway is the same. The good news is the same for everyone. There is no kind of off-base third category from which some people have to start. It's all the same. So your starting point is no different than the starting point of a homosexual in a same-sex marriage or relationship. No different starting point. There are no other kinds of people. There are no other fundamental kinds of issues. No other sins for which the gospel does not provide a redemptive power and solution. Now, what we've just done is said, here's what the Bible says. And you go out on the streets today in Harrisonburg, and there are many people when, if you were to be asked, so what do you believe about, say, the gay marriage issue in Virginia today? And you say, well, the Bible says, they say, frankly, I don't care what the Bible says. It doesn't matter. But you're going to say, oh, but it does matter to me. Okay, and here we expose one of the fundamental issues that the church has today in conversation in our culture of a rapid moral revolution. The church cares. We're under the rule of Jesus, and Jesus communicates his rule and his order to us through the scripture, and we've accepted that. But our culture no longer assumes that, and we're living in a world, we're living in a culture that is rapidly becoming more and more biblically illiterate, not just outside the church, but also inside the church. 
and we're being kind of bombarded with a message of tolerance. The message of tolerance says, in Christian words, you should allow me to destroy myself and society and you shouldn't care. What they say is, you should allow me to love the person I want to love and live in a monogamous, related, committed relationship in a disordered social grouping. And you shouldn't care about that. But we say, but we do care. It does matter. It does matter to us because we love God first. And God has spoken. And he's ordered the world to be a certain way. And that if you don't order your life in harmony with the way God has ordered the universe, you're going to eventually slam up against reality. And it's not going to be good. And so in reading the literature even of many, quote, Christians who embrace gay marriage as something the church should welcome, just as we welcomed slaves into the church years ago after the previous social revolution. There's something fundamentally different. We have to ask the question, how do we decide what's right? And Ravi Zacharias does this so brilliantly and so succinctly. He was asked, so how do you address the question? When someone walks up to you and says, so what do you think about gay marriage? His response goes something like this. Well, you know, societies have three different ways by which they establish the laws for a society. One of those is the theonomous approach, and if you break that down, you have God, law, God's way of establishing law, and societies say, so when God speaks, that's how we get our laws and decide our basic ethics. Then there are societies that don't assume the theonomous approach to law, but rather take a heteronomous approach. There's a small group of people. There are some authorities who establish what's right and what's wrong. And then there are others who take the autonomous approach, the self-rule. I decide what's right and what's wrong. Now, I need to ask you, what is your approach? Are you taking a theonomous view to law, a heteronomous, or an autonomous? Now, if you're taking an autonomous one in asking the question, then you must also permit me the autonomy to make my own choice. You can't take a heter an autonomous one and then impose a heteronomous one on me. Or in other words, you can't say, based on my own assumptions and assertions and perspectives, I have the right to be married in a gay relationship. And it's immoral for you to take a different position. But you see, that is the posture of much of our culture. So they have arrived at a position through an autonomous posture regarding law. But now they say to Christians who take a theonomous posture and says God has spoken and say, our right to autonomy is not your right to autonomy. And so tolerance only goes one way. It doesn't go the other, which is why people who believe in absolutes that have come from God are the only ones, finally, who cannot be tolerated in an autonomous society.
and there lies our challenge. Okay, and the most, probably one of the most concerning things for me is, can we carry these conversations out with our neighbors with wisdom? In gentleness, in compassion, with a deep love for God that communicates itself in a deep love for our neighbors. And I'm afraid that if we just assume a theonomous posture, God has spoken and this is what he said, and fail to understand the various platforms we're standing on, Christians very quickly become branded as just radicals, disconnected from reality, subject to, I think, some undue persecution and ridicule. Or we just, in the next generation, say, that was a bad battle, let's not fight it. And like many churches are, just letting it go. Letting the battle go. Giving in. We must learn to establish common ground for our productive, engaging conversations. Okay, and I want to I finish off to say we're not talking just common ground, we're also talking proclamation of the gospel. But we must start with that. Now, quickly, uh, if I can move very quickly, some final comments on what this looks like, what we must remember. First, we must remember the first and second great commandments. Love God first and neighbor second. Next, we must remember that increasingly our culture, our context, the world in which we live, our neighbors, they're not familiar with the Bible. Many have not read it. Many believe all kinds of crazy things about it that just simply are not true. They may know of it. They think they know what it says, but they're biblically illiterate. And this is not true just inside the, outside the church, but also increasingly inside. And when we begin these kinds of conversations with the Bible says, it holds almost no authority for many of the people we speak to. This doesn't mean we shouldn't quote the Bible, only that we cannot assume it's an authority for the people to which we speak. Next, we must state unequivocally that we understand God's intention to be clear regarding the sin of homosexuality. We have to stand there. And that we do believe that the Bible is the only ultimately reliable source of moral law. You can't put a group of people together and come out with a reliable source of moral law. There is not a single individual on the planet today that you can trust to be absolutely right about how they establish laws for themselves. As Christians, we believe the Bible is the only source. And so we must remain clear and true to that. We must also be clear about other sins. You see, homosexuality is not like the, the, the chief sin in the Bible. Every time these lists occur, there's stuff in there that smacks us upside the face. And so we can't, as a church, just take cues from our culture around us and pull out their pet sin and begin to make it our favorite sin to preach against. Okay, we can't let that dictate our approach to Christianity. So we have to be just as hard on greed, on covetousness, on other forms of immorality. We have to say what the Bible says about those things. 
We can't just pick out one, isolate it, and hammer away at it, while all the others are kind of let go and become a part of even church culture. We must also acknowledge that people are broken in significant ways and as such are tempted or are attracted to different ways of violating the good design of God. And just because you cannot identify with someone who has a same-sex attraction, you might identify with someone who has a lust problem that seems to run wild. And, and I'll be honest with you, most of the people that I have ministered to and talked to who talk about struggling with same-sex attraction have been people inside the church. I know them outside, but people inside the church. There are people who feel these urges. That's a part of their brokenness. And they would say, I didn't choose this pathway, but I'm drawn to, to eating this food. The desire there is stronger than it is for marriage to someone of the opposite sex. There are larger social and personal ramifications for acting out those broken desires than they are for simply being tempted by them. Okay, and we must recognize that. To have the desire, broken as it might be, does not have the same ramifications as beginning to act on those desires. Okay, and God's grace needs to encounter one at both levels. Whatever those desires are, whether those desires would draw us toward homosexuality, fornication, incest, polygamy, bestiality, or other such sinful behaviors as murder, idolatry, greed, or swindling, the same message comes, and it's from Jesus, and he invites us to come with all our broken desires and surrender them to him and seek his transforming, reordering work of all that's broken within us. Just because the attraction of our brokenness points us in a particular direction does not mean that that direction then is an identity that is forever ours. Okay, and here's where the language of our culture has just gotten it badly wrong, and we must recapture this language. We must recapture a biblical language that deals with the issues of homosexuality. The language that's out there is, if I have this same-sex attraction and I can't practice it freely with the blessing of society and culture, then there's no way I can be authentically me. And being authentically me is now the chief virtue and one of the chief kind of signs of freedom. Uh, we can't go down that pathway. We know that's for children. Uh, parents don't just give children something because they passionately desire it. Okay, that's not the criteria by which parents say, you can have that, you can't have that, whether or not they want it. Parent assumes a superior posture and says, I know what's best for you, it's not that, you can't have it. Okay, and God has done the same thing. That doesn't mean they're any less your child. It doesn't mean they're suddenly a, a candy addict because they passionately desire candy all the time. And so they don't carry the label in the specific, unique, social identity. I'm a candy addict for life. It's my identity. It's who I am. I was born that way. Can't help it. And just because I have this ravenous desire for ribeye steaks and pork barbecue and 
beautifully grilled ribs, I hope does not mean that I am now a, quote, carnivore for life, and that's my primary identity. And I'll always have to meet with the carnivores, and I'll always be kind of, oh, there go the carnivores. Oh, watch out for them, they might start liking you too. Uh, those things simply do not mark out our identities. The same is true of homosexuality. One desire pointed in one direction does not mean that is a fundamental human identity. And yet that's what our culture tries to tell us. Okay, it's not. Also, learn to be thoughtful and intentional about the language we use. Uh, we must think of these people as people like us. Again, they're not some odd alien species. They're like us, broken, slightly different ways than some others of us. Also, maybe most importantly, we must commit to working from the center out. And by center out, we must maintain as a community of faith and as individuals a commitment to the person of Jesus Christ and to being a gospel, good news, proclaiming people of Jesus Christ. So if a drug addict walks into our church or into friendship with you, your first priority is not to fix his drug addiction. Your first priority is to demonstrate to him the beauty of a life lived with Jesus and announce the kingdom of God to him, that all those who turn away from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ can be a part of this new society that God is ultimately going to redeem. We must be a community that is centered on Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus. If we get centered on a battle against homosexuality, we get centered on a battle against this and against that and against the other thing, we fail to be the people of God. And it's no different should a, quote, married homosexual couple walk into the church and sit down to worship with us. Our primary goal is not to get them sorted out. Our primary goal is to preach the good news of Jesus and to demonstrate the way of the people of God and community. Jesus said, by this, people will know that you're my disciples. When your love for God creates a community and a society of love that knows how to minister to broken people, because in fact, we are broken people who are a part of the renewing work of Jesus. We can't let this pressing social moral revolution get us off center. We've got to stay centered on the gospel, on the message of Jesus, and the way of Christ in the world. And finally, the church's strength is founded on the clarity of its message in regards to the gospel and the quality of its life together. This must not be compromised. It's the center. May God give us wisdom and insight to understand the times in which we live, but also to understand more clearly the truth of God and the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that way, may he equip us with a courageous humility that invites all peoples from whatever their background, whatever their favorite sins, to surrender all those personal agendas 
to the ultimately beautiful, true, and good authority of our Redeemer and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, there are several things that tend to happen in our hearts when we discuss these types of concerns and issues. One of them is fear. And there is much in our world, and there are many within the church that do seem to ignite in our hearts a fear of what lies ahead. Father, in your grace, may the victory of Jesus Christ be our central focus, and may his renewing power help us to overcome that fear with a perfected, mature love for you that expresses itself in a mature love for our neighbors. Beginning here at the local assembly, our brothers and sisters in Christ, spilling over in rich streams to the broken world in which we live. so that our faith would be stronger than our fear. That by your grace, our love would be richer and stronger than our fear. That the clarity of the good news, the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ would just increase in its beauty before our eyes. And that in whatever our encounters in the world, in our communities. We would be centered on Jesus, a gospel-proclaiming people who love well and communicate skillfully in increasing ways to those people who so desperately need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Grant us wisdom to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.